Be part of an innovative fine arts community immersed in a top research university. Carnegie Mellon University's School of Music's world-class vocal department constantly works at the cutting edge of musical art forms. CMU performance faculty are creating projects that leverage musicians' skill sets in unique and applicable ways. Students are challenged to think outside the box as they engage with non-traditional performance spaces, collaboration with electronics, and improvisation, alongside a robust program of traditional studies, languages, recitals, and operas. To learn more about Carnegie Mellon University and to apply, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. This is So Lit Songlit, a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we reimagine the repertoire by introducing less familiar art songs through sound clips and lively discussion. I'm vocal coach Ellen Rissinger. I'm soprano Tony Marie Palmertree. And I'm tenor Zachary Dean Smith. Join us as we explore this exciting repertoire. So lit, so lit, reimagining the repertoire. Today we are talking about Ingolf Dahl, a German-born but naturalized American citizen who lived in the 20th century. 1912 to 1970 are his dates. And I feel like you could hear that a lot in his works. I completely agree. <laughs> like, he has that very distinct sound of a German in the early part of the 20th century, which makes sense because a lot of the people that he was working with um, and was friends with and performing and doing music for were that core group of people who were exploring what tonality could be. I truly want to be a part of the social circle of Ingolf Dahl <laughs> because this man had it going on as far as like friends, companions, and even the people that he taught. And we're talking like Aaron Copeland, Igor Stravinsky, Victor Borga. He also was the teacher of Michael Tilson Thomas. Jeez. I mean, name after name after name. He's got it going on. It's astounding that that's true because all by all reports, he was an incredibly private man. I mean, for the man who was the choral master of the premiere of Lulu, mm. very few people in his life seemed to know that he was a gay man. It wasn't until after his death that his family uh, found some correspondence um, with his close friends, shall we say, and discovered that he was in fact gay. And some of them actually theorized that maybe why they felt that his music wasn't as emotionally connected, which I disagree with to a degree. I think that there is something you can hear of his emotions in the pieces he does. I also think that perhaps it was a layman listening to 20th century century, merely atonal music and not understanding it. But I think it makes him an interesting figure because, I mean, he was married. He had a wife. His wife knew that he was gay and basically was good friends with his lover. So it's one of those stories where I just wonder what kind of a different life he might have had if he hadn't been so repressed and how that might have sounded in his music. Right. I mean, if he were living now, exactly. what, would the, what would the difference be? But by the same token, if he were living now, he wouldn't have been during his formative years alive during 12 tone and mm -hmm. and atonal and surrealism mm -hmm. and all of that. And expressionism, all that stuff. Exactly. And through struggle, we get art. <laughs> mm -hmm. Didn't you say there was something about the Twilight Zone, too? Oh, yeah. He he composed music for the Twilight Zone. I mean, he was 
he was um in a uh, one of the Charlie Brown movies. He was playing one of the Beethoven sonatas for the official recording of that Charlie Brown movie. Yo, that's cool. I love that. He was well connected <laughs> everywhere, right? So, so this is a guy we should all know, mm-hmm. and because everybody knew him, yeah, <laughs> obviously, apparently everybody loved to hang out with him. Exactly. <laughs> so the the pieces that we're focusing on today are his cycle of sonnets, which are specifically for alto or baritone, and three songs to poems of Albert Erismann. I have to say, before we get started on any of this, Albert Erismann, we don't really have much more information than the fact that he was a Swiss surrealist poet. So if anybody has any information on that, we would love to know more about Albert Erismann. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's start with the cycle of sonnets, because Italian's always a great place to start. Which, incidentally, um, is one of the pieces that we, as far as some scholarship says, bears the initials and were dedicated to some of the men that he loved during his life. Which totally makes sense when you look at some of the poetry in this. As you can tell from the way we're already talking when we're saying words like uh, serialism and atonal, this is not going to be normal romantic art song. This is not Amy Beach. (laughs) (laughs) This is not Schumann. This is not going to sound like Rachmaninoff. This is going to sound like 20th century music. Mm Mm-hmm. Because of that, it's not the easiest. And I would say the thing that, that I found the most difficult in it is the rhythmic challenge in it. Mm-hmm. Even just looking at the first page of the first sonnet, which is called Solo e Pensoso, we have 4-4 four, four for a little while, and then we have a measure of 3-8 and a measure of 2-4. And half the time, there are triplets that tie over to the downbeat of the next measure. I mean, eighth note triplets, so that the you have to come before the beat, so you sort of lose a sense of where the beat is sometimes. The the singer and the pianist don't always feel like they're playing the same song. <laughs> I'm already lost. I mean, I'm a singer, but I'm already lost in these <laughs> rhythms, Ellen. It's crazy, right? So It the... almost looks like those magic eye things from the 80s, you know, when you like... Oh, focus... <laughs> you can God. see the picture if you just get through, you know, the piece. You'll come out to together, I swear. But I mean, this is why we studied Eurythmics in college, right? Mm -hmm. Because it makes it really fun. And the the texts are beautiful Italian. I mean, when when we started with the altro schermo non trovo, in this case, you'll hear a lot of triplets against duels. You'll hear a lot of missing of a beat. Like in the third measure of this, we're missing the beat three, and neither of us play it. The, the singer comes in on a triplet while I come in on the eighth note. So you really lose a lot of the sense of the beat as an audience member, but the performers really have to hold on to their beat to keep this flowing. Mm-hmm. The singers in both cases of these these sets 
all both said to me that once they learned it, they would never want to sing these melodies in any other way. But it took a while to get the melodies in their ears hmm. first. Fascinating. Moving on to the the second sonnet. This is a Petrarch sonnet that Liszt also set in the Liszt Petrarch sonnets for tenor, which is also a phenomenal piece of music. And this is the Benedetto Ciel Giorno, all of those things, that text, which I love. <laughs> and the piano part, I put on a metronome and notched up. Mm. That's what I'm going to say about that. challenging rhythmically it is also challenging note wise because there are a lot of moments where you have to jump an octave and suddenly your hand's not in the right position or more than an octave from b flat to the higher d flat so you have a lot of things to stretch or figure out how to coordinate mm. with the piano for the singer in this piece specifically there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of wavy motion to it a lot of that oscillating sort of stuff exactly which when i hear this it makes sense with the words because you're describing in the words the moment when you have met someone that you're infatuated with and so it just reminds me of like how your brain and your body just like spins in circles in in <laughs> love and infatuation when you first meet this person you you just want to spend all your time with them and ah I'm so exactly. exciting it's like a big old whirlwind <laughs> yes and yes. that is literally what it feels like when you're playing it because you're trying you're trying to hold hold together but you're also trying to get that feeling to feel like it's just flowing Switching to the three poems of Albert Erismann. Now we are in English. And I want you to notice that we have a German-born composer, but we have song cycles in Italian and English. So I'm trying to figure out why a German composer <laughs> is not setting German. Well, one thing that is really interesting, especially if you've listened to our previous podcast talking about um, Nadia Boulanger, is that he actually was a student of hers. He came to America, to California in 1935, to study specifically with her, and then didn't leave because the, you know, things were going down <laughs> over the water, and decided to stay. He then was employed writing like movie scores and things like that. So perhaps the American life influenced him more to not be writing in, in his native German tongue. I, I'm not sure. That's me guessing, but... And I mean, as far as I can tell, there isn't a lot of vocal works that he did outside of these two sets. He was not known for that. He was working on scores in Hollywood and all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably why we see such a limited set of languages, because we have a limited set of vocal works to, mm -hmm. you know, pour through. Yeah. And I have to say, one of the things that popped up in the research is something about either brass methods or 
some kind of like textbook on how to teach brass instruments or how to, how to use or compose for them. I'm not really sure. There was something about brass in there. So mm-hmm. I would be very curious to see what he composed for brass instruments as well. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. And it's also interesting that his other music tends to be tonal. And then he kind of went off on these, you know, sonnets to be very, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he's very obviously has been influenced by Hindemith and Stravinsky. And we get these set of songs that are quite different from the other things that he was writing for movie scores, etc. And the Twilight Zone. And the Twilight Zone, <laughs> right. <laughs> and honestly, we're working backwards with these song cycles because the sonnets he composed in 1968... But the three songs to texts by Erisman were composed in 1933. So this would have been even before he got to work with Nadia Boulanger. Mm-hmm. I think this would have been when he was in Switzerland, because he spent a brief time there before he left Europe entirely. Yeah, and he would have been, if he was born in 1912, and this is 1933, mm-hmm. he would have been 21 years old when he composed these songs. Wow. Mm-hmm. And when it starts... I just, I remember Tony's reaction when we played the clip a little bit. (laughs) When it starts, it actually feels almost tonal. Yeah, it's it's a trick. (laughs) It's a trap. I'm like, oh, this will be nice. Oops. (laughs) But it is, it starts out feeling maybe slightly chromatic, but not as atonal as the the sonnets did. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we start there and then it kind of goes a little bit higher. The rhythmic interest is already definitely there. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of three, four, 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 going back and forth, two, four. And when I say that, I mean everything also is carried over. So there's a lot of ties. There's a lot of dotted quarter notes. We almost have two separate melodies going on at the same time, one in the piano and one in the voice. Like if you just, as a singer, just focus on your own thing and don't listen to what the piano is doing, <laughs> it makes sense. Exactly. And the last song in this set, which is called The Ships Have Come to the Harbor, this one... Yeah, it's a, it's a work song. I mean, the piano is working. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're doing it. And the singer is narrating what's happening in the scene. But I would say this to me feels almost neoclassical. Mm-hmm. I want to say like, because mm-hmm. it does, he was close to Stravinsky. I'm assuming that at this point he would have, if he didn't already know Stravinsky as a person, he would have known his music by now. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this feels very Stravinsky-esque. And honestly, it reminds me a lot of The Rake's Progress, even though The Rake's Progress has not yet been written. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely moments in this where I was feeling that sort of classical-ish 
timbre, r- rhythm, that interest. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. This man is that he produced the the first English translation, workable, singable English translation of the Pierre Lunaire, which makes me very happy. Not that I would ever want anyone to perform it in English, but we can. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> and it's just it's interesting to know that he was beyond all of the fact that he was he knew everybody and he was composing for every instrument and every genre and every style. He also was a linguist, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes me happy. <laughs> Can't imagine why. <laughs> I don't know why. Kitchen police. <laughs> I have to say, getting these scores, I got these scores through interlibrary loan. And they are handwritten. I don't know if these are published in a way that is printed music, or if this is how we, we will always get them. But we will definitely put information in the show notes as to where to find them, how how you can find them. If you want to go on to Interlibrary Loan, I will find you, I believe it's called the OCLC number. I think that's the number that you give. And when we're talking about a level for this... It's skyrocketing. It's into the sky. It is... <laughs> if you do not have a lot of experience um, in the field, or even in this field in particular, it is not something you're going to want to pursue at an early level. Exactly. Just to give you the example, Grace Alai, who sang the sonnets on this piece, they were a senior at Carnegie Mellon when we recorded this, and they were also a TA for Eurythmics. Oh. (laughs) So that gave them a lot of help, just Mm -hmm. knowing that the Eurythmics background was there. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Austin, who sang the songs songs to poems by Erismann, was a second-year master's student at Carnegie Mellon University, too. So... These were both very high-level singers and graduating at the time. Musical clips for this episode were performed by mezzo-soprano Grace Alai, mezzo-soprano Sarah Austin, and pianist Ellen Rissinger, and recorded at Carnegie Mellon University's Music Department Recording Studio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Purchase information for the scores discussed in this episode are available in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find this podcast. Episodes drop every first, third, and fifth Thursday of each month. So Lit, Song Lit is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash podcasts. Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional songmaking at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? 
If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit.